Hello and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in foreign policy and international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow here at Cato. And I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. Today, our discussion focuses on the question of U.S. military bases overseas. Our guest is John Glazer, Director of Foreign Policy Studies at Cato and the author of a recently published paper that argues that the U.S. should seek to scale back its footprint of overseas bases in the interests of U.S. national security. Let's start by talking about this week's news. Um, and I think one of the, the news stories that has come up this week that's actually more of a long-term trend that I'd like to talk about is the continuing dissolution of the State Department under Rex Tillerson. Three more senior diplomats resigned their posts or took early retirement on Friday. Some people internally to the State Department apparently calling it Black Friday. And Tillerson really does appear determined to deconstruct the State Department. What does this mean for foreign policy in the long run, do you think? I have, I'm of two minds on this because one of the sort of old saws about uh, making uh, an organization more strategic in its outlook is, is the sort of you want to make a committee more strategic, cut it in half, cut it the size in half, uh, and you force people to prioritize more and so on. And I think in every organization, especially in a bureaucracy, there's a lot of fat, a lot of redundancy, maybe even you know things that are counterproductive to the mission of the organization. Uh, and so you know, to, to one degree, I'm, I'm sort of like, well, fine. Cut the State Department a bit. But that's not the same thing as leaving entire regions of the world without any kind of coverage whatsoever, which is kind of where we are at the moment. And because Tillerson hasn't said very much about the, the ultimate plan here, I'm, I'm just nervous mostly. Yeah. The other thing is, of course, that uh, in the real world, we have to prioritize. And when you think of something like the Pentagon and you think of how much fat needs to be cut there or waste or fraud and abuse or what have you, Compared to the State Department, I think it's it's uh, apples and oranges. Uh, uh, broader, more broadly speaking, you know, the the worry here is that um, the dissolution of the State Department indicates such a marginalization of the diplomatic power of the United States and the willingness to have area experts uh, who have long ties to foreign countries and the governments therein to try to help cooperatively and diplomatically pursue U.S. interests in that way, as opposed to the emphasis that Trump has, which is to marginalize that but also emphasize the military solutions, um, you know, that's that makes this all the more troubling. Yeah, and it's completely at odds with Trump's speech in Afghanistan that he gave just recently where he said, you know, we'll apply all of the tools of American power to this problem. It sometimes seems that Trump thinks the only tool of American power that's worth using is the military. Yeah, and, and I think too, you know, there have been a lot of recommendations before Trump took office about what the next National Security Council should look like. And most of the recommendations were that it should shrink because it had been taking on sort of more and more tasks that the rest of the government was really supposed to be doing and, you know, had become less good at its main job, which was just advising the president, um, you know, based on a survey of what the agencies have come up with. And I think one danger is that with the State Department sort of denuded, you lose all this local knowledge that's supposed to be helping the United States, you know, filter up to the NSC to make good decisions. It's hard for me to imagine the NSC having enough, enough expertise in itself to be making smart decisions about far-flung places. 
Yeah. I sort of wonder to what extent this business is some kind of uh, – it has its origins in the tense relationship between Trump and Tillerson himself. Um, so, you know, I I am – I struggle to think that Trump has some kind of extended – uh, philosophy of how to engage with the world, ver- you know, diplomacy versus uh, military solutions. Um, but I think he thinks of the world very much so in sort of transactional and personal terms. So he thinks of Teller- Tillerson and he thinks of the things that he says about her and he thinks about how it- Tillerson interacts in-, in presidential meetings and so forth. And he maybe is not as uh, thrilled about um, someone who doesn't just kind of fall over themselves with loyalty to Trump or who doesn't have lots of uh, military decorations to their name. Uh, those are two things that Trump uh, values and Tillerson doesn't have them. And he's kind of in a bet- between a rock and a hard place, Tillerson, and Trump might, may just not dig that very much. I think that's a really good point and, and sort of moves me on to our, our second news topic of the day, which is Trump's advisors apparently have brought him around to the idea that the U.S. should consider sending arms to Ukraine. And this is primarily Jim Mattis, but also apparently Rex Tillerson. This is a debate that we had during the Obama administration. Should we be sending things like anti-tank weapons to Ukraine to help them defend themselves against the Ukrainians? The Obama administration eventually came down against it. Um, Trump appears to be reconsidering it. Has anything actually changed? I don't think the case has gotten anything but worse for arming Ukraine, probably. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that Trump may be responding to is that, um, you know, the conservative internationalists uh, during the Obama administration were very unhappy with Obama's weak need response to Russian aggression and and have been arguing for years now that the United States should be arming Ukraine to increase the costs to Russia of meddling around. And, and Obama administration, as you pointed out, just said, you know what, that's not a good roll the dice for us. Uh, it risks, you know, getting um, sideways with Russia in ways that would be unproductive. And the Trump administration, on the other hand, I think, again, to John's previous point, r- sees the military option as kind of number one, two, and three most favored possibilities. And, and maybe that's just kind of how they see it, which is Russia. Well, we maybe we need to look strong on Russia for a minute politically. And what? Well, how would we do that? Well, military. Yeah. I'd say a couple things strike me about about this Ukraine uh, issue. The first thing is that um, uh, something that's acknowledged in the discussion of arming Ukraine, advocates of arming Ukraine, something that's acknowledged is that it won't change the tactical situation on the ground. It won't change the strategic calculus of Russia. Um, the only thing it might do is create a moral hazard problem with Ukraine where they feel emboldened by American backing, which is – will be more explicit if we start to arm them. And then, you know, things could get worse in eastern Ukraine as opposed to better. What long-term strategic goal does this serve of the United States? That's really hard. If it doesn't change the tactical situation on the ground and only has the potential to make things worse, uh, the increasing costs on Russia isn't going to sap their determination in uh, Eastern Europe in general, but also Ukraine. So, what what goal? What what objectives does it, does this serve for us? The other thing that strikes me is I'm reminded of the discussion that we us three were having in November, December, January, wondering the extent to which the kind of 
permanent national security bureaucracy that tends to have a certain playbook on U.S. foreign policy would be able to sway Trump one way or the other. And I think this, along with a number of other things, whether it's increasing troops in Afghanistan, uh, welcoming Montenegro as a new NATO member, um, you know, uh, a whole host of issues, Trump seems to be conforming to the traditional U.S. foreign policy playbook. Well, let me throw a bit of a wild card at you because there is one area where Trump really doesn't seem to be conforming to what we might consider to be a, a consensus on national security policy, and that's Venezuela. Um, we don't really talk about Venezuela very much, despite the fact that it's a near neighbor, it's a major oil producer that we actually import a lot of oil from, um, and it's descending into chaos and has been doing so for months. The reason that this came back into the news recently is that in the same week, the Trump administration passed new sanctions on the Maduro government. And then there was a news report that said that Trump has asked his national security advisor for military options if things get worse in Venezuela. What do we think is going on here? My best guess, and I actually don't know, but my best guess is that this is of a part of Trump's tendency to say things publicly and take actions that his military advisors, his national security advisors uh, don't even know about. So, for example, the transgender ban in the military. Trump went ahead with that and announcing it on Twitter without consulting Mattis or getting his approval. Uh, and so there was some measure of resistance bureaucratically in the Defense Department to begin implementing it until there was some kind of formal announcement. Um, Trump's uh, fire and fury statement on North Korea, right? This is something that despite people like H.R. McMaster, his national security advisor, being a very uh, hawkish individual foreign policy-wise, uh, he had to kind of walk it back on uh, the cable news channels and say, you know, war is not imminent uh, on the Korean Peninsula. We're not about to start uh, bombing Pyongyang, right? So Trump, of course, has limited impulse control and he flies off the handle rhetorically. And I think this Venezuela stuff is just another example of that. Yeah, I think Trump's instinct seems to be when people misbehave, you hit them on the nose like they're a puppy dog, and the way you hit people on the nose is with some sort of sort of military force. I, you know, it's sort of like imagining Trump woke up when he found out about you know Hurricane Harvey and said, "What are my military options?" Um, uh, none is the answer there. Realistically, you know, maybe maybe just giving him the massive maximum benefit of the doubt, he meant something along the lines of keeping you know, food supplies going and something like that kind of thing if things get bad enough in Venezuela. But somehow I just doubt that that's what he meant at all. And so I think it was probably just an off-the-cuff thing. But the, the worrisome thing is with so many of his off-the-cuff remarks is that they reverberate. And, you know, then McMaster, uh, to make his boss look okay, has to admit uh, and sort of take it a step further and says, yes, we're, we're actively considering military options in Venezuela as if there is one, which I don't think McMaster's, McMaster thinks there is, but he has to say it. And then you have, of course, the Venezuelans coming back and going, this is an unprecedented you know, threat to our sovereignty. What the heck? And so it's just it's disruptive all the way around. Pretty much like the Trump doctrine in general. So I, I think we here at Power Problems are as confused as you are about Venezuela. Um, but let's move on quickly. And before we transition to our sort of big topic for the day, I want to ask our guest a couple of questions um, that I think we're hoping we'll ask all our guests in the long run. And so, John, I'd like to ask you, 
What do you think the biggest threat is to U.S. national security? What area poses the biggest problem? And I know that'll be somewhat difficult for you as a threat deflator mm -hmm. in general. And then secondly, I'll ask what threat to national security do you think is most overblown? The second question is challenging because there's a lot of competition for the most overblown inflated threat that we face. The first question is a bit easier because we're living in the era of Trump. The biggest threat to American national security resides in 16 Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, he is, as we've discussed, someone who flies off the handle. He's willing to use force uh, without um, um, respecting American legal and constitutional uh, uh, standards. When he threw 59 Tomahawk missiles at Syria, he didn't uh, deign to ask permission from Congress. Most of Congress found out about it from the cable news stations. Um, Trump is someone who not only gets us, can get us into trouble uh, externally, but he also is someone who um, you know, uh, has authoritarian tendencies. So uh, if we have a president who capriciously fires disloyal law enforcement officials like FBI director, former FBI director James Comey, that can create all kinds of internal problems that actually do make us less safe, not only from external threats, but from the constitutional protections that make Americans safe from their own government. Um, so Trump is the biggest national security threat we face without a doubt. Uh, in terms of uh, which is the most inflated threat, that's a hard one. I think most, pretty much all the threats that are talked about in Washington, D.C. are overinflated. The way I'm going to answer this is what's the most overinflated threat given the amount of resources that we spend to tackle this inflated threat. And that I have to go with the more traditional response, which is terrorism. Uh, the amount of money that we have spent post 9-11 on the terrorism problem is so immense and so disproportionate to uh, the threat that actually exists that it makes it the most egregious overblown threat, I think, by far. Well, I think this provides us a pretty good segue into our topic for the day, which is on U.S. overseas military bases. And, and John, you wrote a recent paper for the Cato Institute in which you talked about the U.S. footprint overseas and perhaps why we should reduce it. Um, but I'd like to start by asking both of you, you know, what does our overseas military footprint actually look like? What are we talking about when we say overseas military bases? Well, uh Especially starting after the Second World War, the United States uh, established permanent forward deployed military bases in um, mostly Western Europe and uh, Northeast Asia. And those slowly expanded over the years of the Cold War um, and especially after, at the, after the end of the Cold War, uh, starting in the 90s and up to now, we've uh, developed quite a significant permanent military base presence in the Middle East. Um, currently, uh, roughly speaking, we have uh, 250,000 forward deployed uh, U.S. troops. We have roughly 800 military bases in about, in about 70 countries abroad. It depends on what you count as a military base. Some of these are really small kind of warehouses. Some of them are massive bases that are almost like cities in and of themselves uh, that have, uh, you know, uh, 
troops stationed there with their families over a number of years and stuff like this. So it's a very massive presence. Um, we, there's no corner of the planet, really, that we don't have some kind of military base presence in. We have them in Africa, Central and South America, Europe, uh, the Middle East, and, and uh, Asia. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the interesting things when you sort of try to sort through the different kinds of bases and locations is um, sort of uh, like categories of strategic purpose and or value that some of them seem to be holdovers from sort of alliances that have been around forever. And it's almost like we forgot that we had people there, but now we've got five or 6,000 people there in a naval base just because we've always had one there. And then there are the newer sort of very heavily used uh, drone bases or um, air bases in the Middle East and around there or naval depots that we're visiting frequently as we project, uh, you know, power through throughout the oceans um, and so on and so forth. And you have sort of, um, uh, I, I think, the um, – I, I guess for me, the most um, troublesome ones are the ones that we don't know about, um, that we know are out there, sort of the, dark, the covert stuff where um, – you know, special operations forces or the CIA, uh, black sites. Now, I don't think those probably featured much in John's paper per se, but um, if, you know, if we're thinking about the global footprint, it's everything from really obvious stuff to really not obvious stuff. I think that's actually one of the more interesting questions about overseas bases is what do we actually know about where they are, how many people are stationed there, who is in what country, and what is that base designed to actually accomplish? And some of that information is public knowledge, or at least there is some version of that knowledge that is public. Um, but if you go and you actually look at the statistics put together by, say, the International Institute of Strategic Studies, puts out a handbook every year where they list troop numbers in different countries, even they have trouble figuring out where troops are based for various reasons, sensitivities of the host government, um, the fact that we don't want to reveal where our troops are and what they're doing, it can actually be pretty difficult to put together a picture of where U.S. troops are actually based. Yeah, it's, it, you know, the Pentagon in general is uh, not known for its transparency and perfect accounting of, you know, whether where we are or how much money we're spending um, and how we're spending that money and that kind of stuff. Uh, so it's it's one of the more notorious uh, government agencies uh, uh, never has passed a federal audit. It's the only federal agency not to have done so. Um, but as you say, there are sort of uh, deliberate elements of uh, our strategy that uh, incentivize officials not to be all that clear about where we are. We don't want to it's sort of advertised to terrorists where they where they can bomb. We don't want to. Um, um, we have to satiate uh, concerns of host governments, as you mentioned. So, yeah, it can be very difficult to get a handle on. Yeah. So all of this sounds pretty expensive. Would closing bases, as you suggest in the paper, actually save the U.S. money? It depends on how you do it. So uh, a, a decent uh, range of estimates that I uh, compiled in the study range from about $60 billion per year to $120 billion per year, just to maintain this, pre this presence. Uh, in the middle there somewhere, um, American University's David Vine put the number at about $72 billion per, per year. But it all depends on how you count, right? So you can count how much more it costs to uh, – to station a member of the military in a foreign base compared to in a domestic base, and that's 10,000 to 40,000 more per 
per person in non-war zones, or you can count overhead, you can count healthcare, you can start to count uh, additional military system, uh, sort of weapon systems that we need at those places, right? Or the kind of more inclusive way to count this is to include uh, the costs of recruiting and maintaining troops here at home that would have to respond in any kind of tripwire incident or situation abroad in which we need to put to use the, the military forces at a foreign base, the backup forces that we would need, you know, the, the kind of grand strategy that we have to be able to conduct two major wars in two separate um, uh, regions at the same time. Uh, that is, that's where the real costs of our uh, military come in and bases are a huge part of that. So um, yes, cutting them would, would help. Uh, there's about, you know, there's, there's all kinds of different ways to, to count it, but they are extremely expensive and it would save enormous amounts of money if we not only changed our basing strategy, but changed our strategy overall. Yeah, and I think a, a cost that John was, was uh, tippy-toeing up to but didn't get into is the strategic cost, um, you know, of, of entanglement or entrapment, um, having a base in a dangerous part of the world um, that is, you know, at some risk of a terrorist incident or, or whatnot uh, is certainly a, a potential cost that has to be considered. Another cost, though, for, for me, and this is, you know, I just sort of learned this in the process of doing research for the stuff I'm doing right now on arms sales, is that we actually purchased access and, and basing rights in at least a, a couple dozen cases, um, and this, this is ongoing, um, through uh, arms sales. So, you know, the Philippines, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, other places, the initial deal for many of these military bases was, was inked on the basis of an arms sale, sort of in-kind payment, not mm -hmm. just cash. Yeah. And so, so, you know, on the one hand, that looks like it's cheap because the U.S., instead of paying dollars, it sells weapons. Um, but in fact, uh, when you look at what then happens with those weapons, which is all kinds of shenanigans, including having to fight those weapons when you end up at war with that country or they end up invading their neighbor or some other regional instability that results, I mean, that cost is, is very large. And, you know, we're potentially replicating this problem in, in you know, hundreds of Places. Yeah. Just to follow up quickly on that point, um, a lot of people, in order to suggest that our, that our forward deployed presence does not cost that much, reference the fact that a lot of host countries do subsidize uh, the cost of the bases. Japan, in particular, is the most uh, helpful in that context. And some estimates say about seven or eight billion dollars per year go to from host countries to help uh, supply the cost for for the bases that we have. However, there's also foreign aid, which we have given to foreign countries in order that they would allow our base to, t to have a presence there. So sometimes we pay for them and sometimes um, uh, we, we get them paid for. The, the, the foreign aid budget includes some of this and estimates have been about six or seven billion. So if we just do that sort of back of the envelope, we're only getting paid for about a billion dollars worth of this. Yeah, and sometimes even when other countries do subsidize it, they're getting quite a lot out of it. And the example I'm thinking of from my own work is Qatar. You know, we have a giant airbase at Al Udaid in Qatar. Um, the one that was the source of so much controversy during the GCC crisis uh, a couple of months back. Um, and the Qataris, if you read up on Qatari foreign policy, you actually see that they solicited the base 
um, after 9-11. And they wanted the U.S. to come and be based there. And it's because they thought the base would be a great bargaining chip if they ever needed U.S. backing. Um, and, and in this case, it's not against Iran or the people we typically think of as, as, you know, the powers they should be worried about in the region. They wanted U.S. backing in case they felt threatened by Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates. And so they definitely, even though they subsidize the base, they think they're getting something else out of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So... In the paper, John, you talk about closing bases um, and moving the vast majority of American forces back onshore to the the United States. Um, But I wanted to ask you, are there any bases that you think are worthwhile keeping? Are there any bases that are useful strategically or otherwise? Well, there are those two different questions there. First of all, uh, forward deployed bases are extremely useful in the service of a bad foreign policy, which says that we need to be everywhere, respond to all manner of crises in every distant corner of the planet. So they are extremely useful in in serving a bad strategy. Um, Do I think that we should keep any? Well, in the paper, I say that we should be fine with keeping uh, U.S. bases in Diego Garcia, which technically is U.S. territory anyways, uh, and in – oh, sorry, that's uh, British territory, Diego Garcia, and in Guam, which is U.S. territory. Um, there are no uh, host nation problems with Diego Garcia because we're, of course, very close with the U.K. and we've been there since the 60s um, and uh, there's no destabilization. There's no, there's no uh, sort of uh, counterbalancing problems that we get from these bases, but they kind of allow us to be a little closer to the regions in which we might decide to deploy. Um, and I did this essentially as a, as a compromise because uh, I made a really radical proposal to say that we should not have forward deployed bases right now. Um, but uh, I'll throw, throw them a bone in a policy analysis to say, well, we can keep these because they're really low cost, low risk. Um, do we need bases to respond to foreign crises, I think is the point you're getting at. Um, that depends on what role you think the United States should play in the, war, in the world. So, for example, are we safer than China? I'd say definitely yes. The only way we'd, we could be considered not safer than China is the fact that we have all these commitments that obligate us to fight in dangerous wars that are not in our interests, right? China has one overseas base in Djibouti. Are they any safer because of that base? No. Are they, are they any less safe? Probably not. But they're a great power with a very big military. They have nuclear weapons. Uh, They're not at risk of having some country invade Beijing and try to overthrow the government. Neither are we. We are geographically isolated. We're probably the most secure great power in human history. And the notion that we need to have bases abroad in order to respond to various crises uh, is not very persuasive to me, particularly because Um, we have the ability to respond quickly if certain contingencies were to arise. Yeah, I think think John's hit it on the head there. They're mostly useful in service to a a foreign policy that I'm not interested in um, for sure. I think the the question about, um, you know, do we need bases to respond? I I just, you know, look back over the last 25 years – and I can't find too many cases. Even the Gulf War in '91, I had a I had a friend who did an analysis of whether we needed, um, you know, to to send troops as fast. I mean, we basically were able to get people there so fast that there was no way Saddam Hussein could have invaded Saudi Arabia successfully, even though we started from scratch. Mm-hmm. And that's a incredible, um, but b just a proof of how little we need really to be, 
you know, yeah. prepositioned out there. And I mean, we've just... continued to make improvements. So one thing I cite from uh, the scholar Kent Calder in, in, the, in the study is that we moved more troops and equipment in 1991 in, in the first three weeks of the Gulf War than we did in, uh, oh, I forget the statistic now, but in a matter in many months of the Korean War, right? So we, we continue to improve our ability to deploy really quickly. Um, bombing missions would only be, uh, would only take a matter of hours longer if we were to just de deploy directly from the United States or from aircraft carriers uh, in the oceans. And any contingency that really requires rapid deployment of massive amounts of troops, we'd be able to see for a while coming down the line. You know, something like uh, some hegemon in Europe, you know, gobbling up its neighbor states and presenting a balance of power problem, et cetera. Um, so, uh, yes, I think that uh, all bases should be essentially withdrawn. It doesn't serve American interests. Uh, we're not insecure enough to uh, require uh, all these bases. And more to the point, um, having them makes us less safe as opposed to more safe. Well, that's a uh, extremely radical proposal. I don't know if you'll find political support for it. Um, but, you know, I think Usually it's Usually a sign you're doing something right here in DC. I think it's an interesting debate um, and one that particularly as Congress starts to talk about the budget, about the military budget, overseas bases are someplace where there is actually room for cuts that wouldn't reduce U.S. safety at all and, and might actually save us a little bit of money. And there are steps that can be taken like leaving heavy material overseas while we bring the troops home that mean that we can deploy a lot faster in the future. Thanks for joining us today. Follow us on Twitter at CatoFP or at hashtag FPPowerProblems. Join us next time when we'll be discussing Afghanistan with the Stimson Center's Samira Lalwani.